You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is best known for our collection of social movement ephemera, but we are also a social space that hosts events and exhibitions, often in collaboration with other institutions and community groups. And we have a library of books related to social movements. We've been doing thinking about what it means to be an alternative library. In this episode, we'll share conversations with four libraries who have inspired us. Street Books in Portland, Oregon, Books Through Bars in New York City, Feminist Library on Wheels in Los Angeles, and the ABC No Rio Zine Library in New York City. Diana, who's a longtime librarian and our board president, watched this fight begin to brew and she just you know, she watched this unfold. And so she started to close up the library and bike away. And one of the two that was involved in this fight said, wait, book lady, wait a second. I want a book. And then uh, that essentially broke up the scrap because he wanted a book more than he wanted to set things right. You're listening to Laura Moulton, street librarian and founder of Street Books, a bicycle powered mobile library in Portland, Oregon. Streetbooks has been operating since 2011, checking books out to folks living outside and staking out public space for people to gather for conversation. We talked to Laura about the initiation of streetbooks, what it means to be a street librarian, and some challenges of operating a library outdoors for folks on the margins. In its very boiled down form, it had to do with what would happen when I combined books and a bicycle and reached out to people who were living outside. And now, eight years later, we just are finishing our uh, summer season. And this summer, we had seven librarians serving shifts all over the city of Portland, different spaces in the city. For example, Patti Moran, who's fluent in Spanish, helps with the Spanish-speaking shift on Tuesdays. We work that shift, and that's at the Workers' Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard, where Mostly men, occasionally women, gather to try to get work for the day or for the week, kind of um, day labor structure. On Mondays, there is an Old Town shift, and that's run by a guy named Ben Hodgson. And that one is a special one because Ben was one of my patrons in 2011, and he was uh, a very well-read man living out on the streets, and he would come see me once a week and right away busted my chops because I didn't have any PG Wodehouse. And he was like, come on, what kind of librarian are you if you don't have PG Wodehouse? And uh, he was outside for a period of about three and a half years and gradually began to volunteer with us. At the time, he was at a campsite up in the Southwest Hills. And he's since transitioned into an apartment. And this is his second year running his own ship. We asked Laura about the mechanics of the library. How does someone check out a book? And what are the rules and agreements associated with being a card holder? We're very nostalgic about the old school card in the pocket inside of the cover of a book. And we have people sign their name on the card. That's a card we keep. We let them know there are no fees, no fines associated with our library, but we do invite them to come back the next week, turn it in and check out something new. A lot of our patrons will reference the fact that they've got 
a fair number of fines at the Multnomah County Library. And for that reason, they can't check out books. And it might be because they were stolen with a backpack that got lifted or any number of reasons, but there's nothing punitive if they have not managed to return with their paperback book. I mean, I think the role of a librarian that is a street librarian is, it's kind of layered. On the one hand, our job is to recommend books. In that way, we're kind of old school librarians. Our patron, John, for example, is really into Louis L'Amour, but has always only ever read Louis L'Amour and is maybe in a position to be sort of converted to some Cormac McCarthy or the Sisters Brothers, that kind of shift into maybe slightly more literary fiction. I think that's a fun thing to help people find new and different kinds of forms of the genres they already love. There's that piece of it. But I think that for street books, our librarians' roles really have a lot to do with setting a spot, a physical, literal spot in the middle of a sidewalk and opening up this display of books and kind of lay claim to a piece of street during a time when that is very controversial, even you know, with sit-lie ordinances and businesses fighting back against people mm-hmm. sitting with their backpacks on the sidewalk. The nature of the work is, is such that we see people who probably are feeling some of the worst feelings of their lives. I'm amazed at how resilient and scrappy people are when they have had to face a reality of, of walking around with a backpack and maybe that's about it. We are a pure conversation that is not a police officer. It's not a parole officer. It's not a disappointed family member or parent. It's just someone who recognizes them, greets them by name, and is glad to see them. And I think having a thriving community that is based in literature and lively conversations and kindness is a pretty powerful thing to be able to do. And I think that that has been something that we've been able to do as an organization. Books Through Bars is an all-volunteer collective that sends free books and educational materials to incarcerated folks in state prisons. We spoke to Melissa Martirano. We send a wide variety of books of all genres uh, to people in prison, but we try to prioritize radical political materials and literature because those are exactly the type of materials that prison authorities are withholding from their own libraries and also officially suppressing in other ways. The organization was founded in 1996 by anarchists based in the Lower East Side in New York City to primarily serve women and children in prison. But since its founding, they have expanded to serve women, men, and gender nonconforming individuals of all ages who are incarcerated in 40 states throughout the country. The group sends about 800 packages of books per month, with two or three books in each package. We really see what we do as helping people in prison seek liberation through education. And we really see the value in giving people a book and helping that start prison strikes and and other movements within prison. Books Through Bars is not a library in the traditional sense of the word. They do not loan books out for people to read. 
they donate books to people as a means of providing educational resources where those resources are not readily available. But their work does support a sharing economy, which is one of the core values of a library, and fills in big gaps in what books are available in prison libraries. And so for these reasons, we are including them in this episode. Because of the informal networks that people create within prison, that one book we send to one person will be shared. So with our books, incarcerated people are making their own libraries too. Something that we did one time too, there was um, a prisoner who wrote to us from California and he uh, actually created a radical library, like a radical political library. He wrote to book to prison programs across the country asking for books about black power, books about like indigenous studies, books about LGBTQ issues. And we sent him a lot of books because that's exactly the type of literature that we prioritize. We asked Melissa to describe the library systems that currently exist in prisons. The libraries are generally understocked. They have out-of-date resources and they don't have books that serve the historical, political, and sociological um, needs of people in prison. New York libraries for people in state prisons tend to be better than in other states, although I'm not glorifying the very meager conditions that are available. But prisoners will still have very limited access to that library. And even the so-called model prisoner will not be able to access the library whenever they want. And then prison authorities can punish people by denying them access to the library, to reading materials, to educational programming. And then people in solitary have no access to libraries because they have to remain in their uh, cell for 23 hours a day. And they might have access to a book cart, but that's not guaranteed. People in New York State prisons can also have access to interlibrary loan programs, but those tend to take way too long. And the regional libraries often are only stocked with books that cater to a very white conservative audience and not to the people who are generally incarcerated in New York State, which are primarily Latino people and uh, Black people. Books Through Bars hosts packing sessions, where they read letters they receive from prisoners about what books they want and match them with the books available in the Books Through Bars library of donated reading materials. Sometimes they get pretty generic requests, and other times the request is more specific, and they have to approximate what someone wants based on what is available in the library. Every prison also has its own arbitrary rules of what can be sent in, and Melissa talks about navigating these restrictions. One of the most common restriction is against hardcover books, and most facilities will only accept paperback books. And so sometimes when we we have a hardcover book in our in our library. We generally discourage people donating um, hardcover books. We will take some. And if we have a hardcover book in the library that someone really wants and is exactly what they want, but that their facility doesn't allow, we will rip off the cover mm-hmm. and then send them um, the book without the cover. And that generally tends to work. One time we sent a book to Virginia and it was a figure drawing book. And we get a lot of requests for people wanting to learn how to draw or improve their, their art skills. And it had a drawing of a nude woman. And we were accused by a prison facility of trying to incite a riot. These rules are not predictable and we just sort of have to abide by this arbitrary network of restrictions that we we keep uh, privy to. In addition to sending books to folks who are incarcerated, Books Through Bars does advocacy work around legislation that would limit access that people in prison have to educational materials. Earlier this year, New York State began to implement a pilot program under Directive 4911A to ban books and other survival resources such as food and clothing from being donated by community groups, family members, and friends in three prison facilities under the pretense that they are contraband. 
Instead, they introduced vendors who would sell these materials at overly inflated prices. This would have been a catastrophe if it went statewide. These vendors were all created in order to profit from people in prison and, and to profit from their networks outside. And what this did was it was going to put pressure on prisoners who are already extremely economically marginalized. They come from economically marginalized communities before they go to prison, and then they make slave wages, and I use that word explicitly, in prison. And the, the people that they rely on are also from economically marginalized conditions. They would not have been able to afford the price of these books, the price of, of these pieces of clothing, the price of the food available. And with books in particular, as an organization that sends free books and educational materials to people in prison, we saw this as a way to deny prisoners access to education even more than they already are. The New York Books Through Bars chapter worked with other community groups to launch an intense media campaign where they hit Governor Cuomo, who was a self-avowed prison reformist, and eventually the directive was overturned. While they won this battle in New York City, similar restrictions are being imposed on prisons in other states across the U.S. In Pennsylvania, for example, the government unilaterally banned books from being donated in any facility altogether. For links and updates on this legislation in Pennsylvania and how folks are organizing around it, please visit our show notes. The Feminist Library on Wheels, or Flow, is a free mobile lending library of donated books. Flow is based in Los Angeles and aims to facilitate access to feminist works. We spoke with Don Finley, one of Flow's co-founders. I'm Don Finley, and I'm from Los Angeles, California. And you run the Feminist Library on Wheels, and I'm curious about how the library got started. I co-run it, I should say, with uh, other volunteers. And it started in July 2014. I was in a feminist reading group sponsored by the Women's Center for Creative Work. Uh, I co-facilitated it at the time. That started in April 2014. And one of the other members of the group, Jen Witte, who um, works at a fabulous independent bookstore here in LA called Skylight Books, was also in the group. And she was talking to the Women's Center about building a library for them. And she brought that idea to the group, and then she said, what if it could be on my bike? And I raised my hand and said, what do you want? Like, whatever you want, I'll help you. This sounds amazing. And we met, and we had one conversation where we said, we want it to be free. We want people to have multiple drop-off locations. We want to have all the books be donated. We kind of came up with just a few basic ideas. And then things happened very, very fast from there. We got started and started checking out books by September. We've been going pretty strong ever since. (laughs) We have about 5,400 books in our collection, books and zines. The collection lives at the Women's Center for Creative Work and is available to the public when the center is open, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, or during Don's office hours on the weekends. Flow brings works from its collections to communities throughout Los Angeles. Where does the library go? That first year we did things like we went to a reading series. We went and set up outside and everyone who was coming into the reading came out and checked things out. We did events with the Women's Center for Creative Work. We did a film festival. 
We did a cyclocross event. We did the big cyclovia that happens now many times a year here in LA. We went to uh, the Peter Performance Space. Well, so that was 2014. What has the journey been like since then? Jen and I are still both actively involved and we've had some volunteers kind of come and go. And then recently this year, we've had a group of volunteers sort of over the last year, I would say, come in and we've had some more regular people who are starting to become a little bit more invested in flow. And that's something I'm really excited about and and really hopeful that we can cultivate more. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to grow into something like a collective. Part of the whole idea with flow is to, because all of our books are donated, the collection really represents a kind of crowdsourced definition of feminism. It's not what my feminist bookshelf looks like or what Jen's feminist bookshelf looks like. It's what a huge number of people's feminist bookshelves look like. And so it makes sense that for us as an organization, there's not just one voice represented. We really want there to be, you know, we want everyone involved in Flow to also feel a sense of ownership and investment that they are Flow (laughs) too. So you answered it in part, but what is the purpose of Flow to you? The three parts of what we are, it's the three things in our name, the feminist library on wheels. Those three things are all really deeply connected in what we do. And they're about feminism, literacy, and mobility as being connected, connected tools of liberation. What do you think the role of a librarian is? One interesting thing about Flow is that I'm not a librarian, technically. Jen isn't either. I feel like a lot of my job is just making things less scary for people. A lot of people come to Flow at events and say things like, I wish I knew more about feminism, but I don't know where to start. I feel like my job is to really say, you have nothing to apologize for. What are you interested in? Where Where are you? I'll help you find something to meet you where you are. Our lending policy is as many books as you want for as long as you want. We want people to take their time to to live with the books as long as they need to, to figure out how they fit into the larger picture of how they live. And for me, being able to facilitate that is just kind of astonishing. ABC No Rio is a legendary art center on the Lower East Side. It was founded when a group of artists turned an abandoned building into a gallery for The Real Estate Show, an exhibition critiquing the city's land use policies. Eventually, the artists negotiated with the city for the use of the building, which became ABC No Rio. In 2016, the building was demolished to make way for a new building for the center. All the projects that lived at ABC No Rio, including punk shows, screen printing, and a darkroom, are currently in exile at different locations in the neighborhood. ABC No Rio's zine library moved to Clemente Sotovelis building on Suffolk Street. We spoke with Julia, one of the volunteer zine librarians. Tell us what the zine library does. ABC No Rio is a collectively run center for art and activism 
located in the in the Lower East Side of New York, and the Zine Library houses a collection of over twelve thousand zines, independent publications, and underground newspapers. A lot of our zines are focused on oppositional culture. So there's a lot of a lot of zines that might have a political, musical, or punk influence. Some zines that you might find would be underground newspapers like Slug and Lettuce or The Shadow. We also collect more personal zines as well, different one-off publications. A lot of zines are focused on New York and different New York political issues different grassroots movements from from lower Manhattan and but there's also different zines from all over the world and there's uh, zines in foreign languages. And how was the Zine Library founded? Zine Library was founded in 1998. The organization ABC No Rio started in the 80s. In the 90s was when they started collecting zines. That's when they they rescued a small zine collection called Blackout Zine Library from a squat in the South Bronx that was soon to be evicted. So ABC New Rio absorbed that collection, and when ABC New Rio became a nonprofit, the zine library became one of its programs. What's the purpose of keeping zines here in a specialized zine library as part of ABC No Rio, as opposed to having them go to a university or a museum archive or something like that? We're a really small group of volunteers, zine librarians. We're not professional librarians. We're not professional archivists. But the zine library creates almost its own strategy and questions different norms in library and archiving science. It's this like weird mix where it's, it's a library that you can browse, but it's also an archive because these are original records organized by date. It's super important for academic libraries to keep these materials in. In many ways, they can keep them in a climate-controlled environment a lot better than we can. But what we allow people to do here is they can touch the zine. They don't need my or the zine library permission to, you can do what you want. You can touch the zines, you can can open them. And if you go to any academic library, you often won't find that. Some places you'll only be able to view one zine at a time, and that's after a librarian or archivist gets it for you. So it's a very unique place for that, and it's more, provides better access. So what are some of your favorite zines in the collection? One of my favorites is Tim Slave. It's a serial zine from the 90s. It's a zine that featured people's different stories about temping in different office environments and working for the man and and all the politics of temp jobs and 
feelings that you go through, though, and it's incredibly well put together. Just a, a lot of a lot of diversity of different stories. So it's definitely one of my favorites. This one is kind of a wild cover of a of a man in a suit with a cheese head and rats eating his <laughs> cheese head. And there's all these different happy, in quotes, Tim stories. Really good at talking about, like, the politics and economics of working in the, in the 90s. So you mentioned the zines are organized by date. By physical organization, they're actually organized alphabetically by title. We organize them by letter first, then a number, L1, L2, L3, for example. So let's take out the L8 box. So we've got Lost City, mm-hmm. Loose Cannon, Lost Boys, Lone Wolf Bulletin, Lost Dreams, Love Against the Machine, let's see here, Love Eats Brains, A Zombie Romance. Love fades. Oh, now we're in the in the love category. This the Interference Archive believes in access to information and sharing resources in the spirit of public conversations. Coming up in the spring, we'll be releasing Radical Access Part Two, exploring more of our favorite alternative and community libraries. Thank you to Street Books, Books Through Bars, Feminist Library on Wheels, and ABC No Real. Please visit our show notes to learn more about these four organizations. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by the Interference Archive. Thanks for listening.